This is Winter is Here, a podcast where we discuss how we arrived at the global battle between tyranny and democracy, and more importantly, how we can win. I'm your host, Yuri Lepstein, Executive Director of the Renew Democracy Initiative. And we have a really special episode of Winter is Here for you today, as my co-host and RDI Chairman Gary Kasparov take a stab at assessing where we are six months after Russia's re-invasion of Ukraine, and what I hope is the realization by most of the free world that we're actually in a global fight. And so, Gary, to start off with, do you think the free world has realized this? I mean, do you think people have recognized that this global battle exists? There is no choice but to recognize it. But I'm under the impression that many politicians and ordinary citizens, they wake up every morning and they rub their eyes in disbelief. No, it's impossible. Six months of war, a conventional war, World War II type in Europe. And moreover, there's no end inside. I think there's still the gap between real threat coming from this war, not just from Putin, but from war itself and the consequences of this war for Ukraine, for Europe and global impact of this war and expectations of political class in the free world and most of the public that somehow we have to get out of this. Somehow this nightmare must end. We don't know how, but we don't want this to continue. So uh, this gap is very much in favor of Putin and other totalitarian, authoritarian forces around the world. So, Gary, for 20 years, you've been warning about this. For 20 years, you've been talking about this global battle. People have accused you of being an extremist, of being chicken little, warning everyone that the sky is falling. Have you noticed the change in the last six months? I mean, are people reacting differently to these warnings now, at least? They don't react with warnings because I'm no longer offering the warnings. <laughs> now they won't be hearing the assessments. No, there's quite a change. And first and utmost, among business people, because business is, is first to realize the old game is over. And the same business conferences, the same multinational organizations that try to stay away from me you know, as a warmonger and try not to provoke Putin and other authoritarian leaders in the world, not to disrupt their business relations with them. Now they want to hear, so what's coming next? For a simple reason. Because while you had all these inbremers of this world, let's just, you know, have hmm. a combined class of analysts that have been saying very trivial things without really giving, you know, it's predictions based on, on analysis. So somehow I was one of very few who proved to be right. And that's why now I'm welcome guest in many places that were almost taboo for me before the beginning of the second phase of invasion on February 24th this year. I think that's a really interesting point about these so-called experts, you know, and there's so many of them who got this incredibly wrong, right? They said Russia would never invade and so forth. And these are folks with PhDs. These are people who are the foremost leading experts on this issue. And, you know, generally when folks think about you, they don't think academic. I mean, you're not an academic. You know, you and I have talked about this, actually. You didn't have that formal academic training, and yet you predicted this right. And most everyone in the academic community, in the academic foreign policy community, predicted this wrong. What do you think they were missing? 
they were missing a very simple thing, the nature of the opposition, the nature of Putin regime. They believed that they could operate within a normal balance of pro and cons, benefits, uh, liabilities. And uh, as you just said, it's they have not expected such dramatic move from Putin for a simple reason. There was a good business going on. So how could you endanger these relations that have been built over years or decades? While I had no illusions, we have been dealing and still dealing with mafia. And it's still probably the worst kind of mafia we've ever seen on this planet. It's a combination of Soviet-Russian criminal world and KGB. And over years, they merged and now they are emboldened by impunity because everything worked for them. They committed crimes once, against many times with no consequences. Moreover, they became the richest people on the planet. Definitely the Putin's oligarchs. They were on the top positions in the Forbes list. And that's what we know. Naturally, there's this so much, you know, just under the surface, under water, because what we saw in public domain that was the tip of the iceberg. We were talking about hundreds of billions, most likely a couple of trillion dollars that have been siphoned out of Russia into the free world. And this money in the minds of Western politicians and experts and business people was some sort of a guarantee against any drastic moves by Putin because it was business. And they always tried to accommodate Putin, find the negotiated outcomes from every crisis. But I knew that, you know, while the free world thought that they could leave Crimea annexation behind and they believed that they found some sort of a compromise, okay, we ignore it, we pretend it's not something that we recognize, but we can live with that. But from Putin, it was just, you know, a free pass for further aggression. Again, it's all about the nature. It's something that they didn't want to recognize that even Soviet leaders, communist leaders, they had some sort of rules to follow. They knew that it was the global community and they had to play, not always, but they have to play by some rules that have been agreed upon. And violation of these rules could lead to dramatic consequences. While Putin always believed that he could just violate the rules as long as it worked for him, and it always worked for him. So that's why mm. for me, his invasion of Ukraine after 2014, invasion of the whole Ukraine, was just a matter of time. It was not if, but when. So the very first episode of Winter is Here was me, you, and Alex. And we talked about what the free world needed to do. We talked about how we needed to immediately implement maximum sanctions on Russia. And I remember you and I even created this website to try to track sanctions on Russia and weapons shipments to Ukraine. Now, Obviously, a lot has changed over the last six months. And so I think this would be a good opportunity for us to look back and see where we are now versus where we were back then. So why don't we start with sanctions on Russia? What's your assessment of the current state of sanctions on Russia and what more needs to be done? Again, we should go back to 2014 because that was the moment where the West had no choice but to impose sanctions. They talked big. They did very little. We all remember Obama bragging that Russian economy was in tatters somehow in 2015. <laughs> it's, it sounds like a joke. Even today, the economy is still functioning with real sanctions. So they all pay lip service to the Crimean annexation. But 
in theory, they impose sanctions on Russia. We know that these sanctions have been violated all the time. And several European countries, Germany and France included, they even supplied technology that was most likely used for military production. That's after 2014. So invasion of Ukraine, annexation of Crimea, war in Eastern Ukraine, MH17. So those just, you know, those things that would be enough to actually to raise the awareness that time was running away for us to do something. Now, whether the, the sanctions, you know, had any effect on Putin? Absolutely not. Moreover, it was another sign for Putin that he could do anything with almost no consequences. And also, Ukraine never had a real chance to rebuild its army, to prepare for new invasion. So 2014, then 2015, the war was over, and Europe was very busy to force Ukraine to accept so-called Minsk Agreement. It's already ancient history, but, you know, eight, nine months ago, that was still a very big item in the agenda, not just for Europeans, but for Americans. And I think it's very important for us just to not to ignore it, that Ukraine was under tremendous pressure to accept Minsk Agreement, which meant basically subjugation of Ukraine to Putin. The idea was that the Russian-controlled areas in the eastern Ukraine would become part of Confederate state and will have final say or a big say in Ukrainian politics. And that would be like, you know, inserting or just infusing cancer from Eastern Ukraine, political cancer, into the main body of Ukrainian politics. So by 2021, Putin got really frustrated that nothing worked out and Ukraine was resisting the pressure from Germany and France, primarily from Merkel and Macron, that tried very hard to push Ukraine in this direction. And also he got a Nord Stream 2. Also, let's not forget, Nord Stream 2. All these years, Putin had been building with German assistance, full political cover with German money. He was building the pipeline to circumvent Ukraine, to make sure that the war in Ukraine will never hit Russian gas export to Europe. And we heard from German politicians, ah, it's, it's business. Again, going back to the previous question, they talked about business and Putin also meant business, but very different kind of business. His business was geopolitical. So by 2021, it became apparent that Putin had new plan for Ukraine, actually new plan for the world. I'm sure he had this plan for many years. And then, you know, we had heavy artillery, Joe Biden. Joe Biden comes into play. Now Europe failed to resolve the crisis. And now an American president offering summit for Vladimir Putin. So in June 2021, Joe Biden met Putin in Geneva. That was, and for me, it was a mockery because, you know, I remember 1985 Reagan meeting Gorbachev. That was history. Huh. And, and we could see who dominated in 85. Unfortunately, in 2021, they're also reversed. And that's, I believe, what Putin got from this meeting. Nothing but weakness and unwillingness of America to get involved in Ukrainian crisis, you know, like full Monty, to offer Ukraine full support. We don't know what was discussed there, but there are all reasons to believe that Ukraine was one of the topics. And Biden administration had other big items on their agenda. One of them was Iranian deal. This is botched Iranian deal that they wanted to sign at any cost. And also John Kerry's green agenda. And Putin saw, you know, it's a it's new opportunity in this geopolitical casino, bargaining chips now. So we know that was one summit, followed by two online summits. 
And according to American administration, so Biden kept warning Putin against invading Ukraine. So if Biden did it and Putin ignored it, that's bad. But what could be even worse, that Biden actually didn't tell them unequivocally that it would be red line that he could cross. More likely, it was just a just desperate attempts to find, you know, anything, you know, to offer Putin to prevent full-scale war. Putin, as Hitler or Stalin ages ago, he got the message that big deal. As long as I'm, I'm victorious, as long as my troops can enter Kiev in, in three, four days, nobody will lift a finger. And unfortunately, he was right. And speaking about weapons, one of the reasons that we started this website is that we all know that American administration withheld all weapon supplies to Ukraine because they were under impression, actually they believe, that the Ukrainian army would collapse in a matter of weeks or even days. That's what General Milley said on the Hill in his testimony on February 2nd and 3rd. And that's what CIA predicted, you know, after a Russian invasion. 96 hours. Yes, in, in, on February 24th, 96 hours, Kiev would fall. So I think this is one of the problems that we indicated from the very beginning, that people are responsible for making big decisions. They were so wrong. And that was not about being wrong, you know, about Putin's intentions. They were wrong about assessing strengths of Putin's army, Ukrainian spirit, their will to resist, the political miscalculation about the nature of President Zelensky, who proved to be a real hero, unless for his uh, um, personal heroism and fighting spirit of the whole nation. We could live today in a very different world. I have no doubt. And it's, 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 it's whatever these experts and politicians are telling us today, because they all were pro-Ukrainian. If Putin, God forbid, had succeeded in taking over Kyiv, we would be now seeing these American, French, German, EU delegations trying to save what they could from Ukraine and offering Ukraine's best deal. And of course, you know, putting sanctions on Putin, but saying, what can we do? So it's um, tough luck. So again, it has not materialized this nightmare scenario because Ukraine paid enormous price. And that's why I'm getting frustrated hearing cautious voices in the free world that uh, more weapons supplies, more sanctions could provoke Putin and push that into World War III. We are already in the World War III, actually more likely World War IV, because World hmm. War III was Cold War. And this war was won convincingly by the free world because we had political leadership. By the way, the economic and military disbalance was not as stark as today, it was not as apparent. Soviet Union was much more powerful economically and militarily than Putin's Russia. And the battle between capitalism and socialism, the ideological battle, was still very much, you know, just, it didn't have a practical outcome. It was still very much in question. But the free world had leadership. And today we know the biggest problem is not shortage of funds, military equipment, hardware, or economic power. It's complacency, it's cowardice, it's lack of political will, and it's both on the top of political pyramids, but also there's the unwillingness of general public to make big sacrifices. Though Ukrainian war, I think, made a big dent in this social apathy. We saw a phenomenal wave of enthusiastic support for Ukraine, and uh, I hope that we can capitalize on it and we can use this positive energy 
not only to help Ukraine winning the war and destroy Putin's armies, but also to re-energize our own democracy. That was an incredibly vast overview, I think, of the history and where we are now. And I should note, right, that the weakness of Western leadership didn't start with Joe Biden, of course, right? I mean, you know, you had Donald Trump at Helsinki siding with Putin over his own intelligence agencies. Fiona Hill famously said that she seriously considered faking a medical emergency just to try to derail that press conference where famously Trump was just absolutely kowtowing to Putin. And one of the, you know, I think, just most shameful displays of American foreign policy. And then famously, of course, our colleague Alex Vindman publicized the fact that Trump tried blackmailing Zelensky by withholding $400 million worth of congressionally mandated aid in return for Zelensky getting some kind of dirt on Joe Biden. Now, I think that was a very strong 30,000 foot high view. So now let's take it, you know, a few feet lower, right? Let's look specifically at the sanctions. Six months ago, or or a little more than that, actually, Gary, I remember you and I met with the House Financial Services Committee to basically offer our advice on what sanctions should look like in Russia. And I think over the course of the last six months, we've certainly over the course of the first few months of the war, we actually found that, you know, the sanctions were powerful for the first time, I think, in history in a way that the free world has never done before. What's your sense of the sanctions now? Are they sufficient And what more could we be doing on the sanctions front? I don't know whether the word sufficient is a good one, yes, but they're meaningful. These sanctions are biting. These sanctions are having an effect. And I don't think Russian economy will last long if these sanctions stay in place. So it could take maybe a couple of years, but it's very clear the the direction of Russian economy now, it's being disintegrated. But we are talking about war. And Putin still has resources to continue the war. And every day, every hour, every minute, Russian guns, Russian shells kill people, most of the innocent people in Ukraine. And devastation of Ukraine, again, has a global impact. So we just have to find the most effective way to paralyze Russian war machine, to make sure that the war production will be reduced to minimum or will be stalled. And people will feel the heat of the sanctions to start asking questions, hopefully on the streets, so about their own government. So what can be done, you know, just to help Ukraine winning this war and keep Putin most painful? One thing that is being, I wouldn't say overlooked, but there's less talk about in the press, it's import. Everybody talks about Russian export, about oil and gas which again, you have to sanction it and you have to find a way for Europe and the rest of the world to live without Russian gas, at least for a short term, to make sure that Putin will be denied cash. He needs to continue the war. But import is something that can be controlled and could have probably a bigger effect on Russian economy because Russian economy, unlike Soviet economy, has been fully integrated in the free world. It's an effect of globalization. And spare parts, they are absolutely crucial for any continuation of war, even in oil and gas industry. And we know that several countries now benefiting from the so-called parallel imports, like Turkey, Republic of Georgia, Kazakhstan. And this is something where the free world can actually have a say, because it's much easier to stop than refuse buying Russian gas. It will not have the same effect on customers, on public, but it will have dramatic effect on ability of Russian economy to function. 
And also, there is a psychological factor that's being, I think, underestimated. Yes, sanctions are meaningful, but it's very important that everybody in Russia, especially people who are you know, in charge of politics and economy, those who are making decisions, and those who still believe that uh, dear leader, Russian dictator, Führer, whatever they call him, Vladimir Putin could still do a miracle to get uh, a rabbit out of a hat because he was in power for 22 years. And they always saw him outplaying his Western counterparts. So what I've been waiting for and haven't heard yet from Western leaders is a clear unequivocal statement that the sanctions in their current forms, and I'm not even asking to add more, but extra sanctions welcome, but even those who are imposed now will stay unless three conditions being met. One, it's a full liberation of Ukrainian territory, including Crimea. Two, a payment of reparations in full, according to calculations, estimations of the international community. And three, war criminals brought to justice. If these conditions are being declared, that equals regime change in Russia. That will send a message to every Putin bureaucrat, every military commander, to every businessman in Russia, that there will be no future as long as Putin stays in power. So I'm wondering why such a simple statement, which does not contradict any official policies and doesn't require any political capital being spent, has not yet been pronounced by the top leaders. And I see only one explanation that really makes me worried. They're still, no matter what they say, they still believe that there is a chance for what they call negotiated outcome. They still believe mm-hmm. there is a chance to avoid uh, the total collapse of Putin regime by offering some kind of a deal that will involve Ukrainian territory, territorial concessions. No matter what they say, I bet you that maybe with a few exceptions, all of them are still willing to grab the deal if it's, it's doable. Obviously, Baltic nations will be against it. Poles will never accept it. Probably new British administration, if least trust takes over. As for the continental Europe, European Union, Biden administration, if they get Iranian deal and John Kerry's uh, green concessions, I'm sure they'll grab it as well, no matter what they say now. You know, I think one of the themes that we've seen throughout all of these wrong predictions from both the experts as well as, you know, what we might say kind of weak need response from the free world is this hope for flexibility, right? This hope for many other options, this almost desperation to keep doors to other things open. And, you know, in some cases, that's admirable, right? It makes sense. You know, it's a natural psychological need for us to want to keep our options open. But on the other hand, it's pretty clear just the horrific impact that keeping these options open actually has in the long term, right? What you're suggesting here isn't necessarily a change in our current sanctions regime. It's just a stiffening of resolve and a signaling mechanism that these sanctions are here to stay and that the Russian government can't just wait them out. Absolutely. Unconditional surrender. That's what we have to demand now. It's unconditional surrender of Putin's armies to Ukraine and liberation of the full Ukrainian territory. Because it's a war against fascism. And it's a war is, you know, as important for human history as one that we fought 80 plus years ago. And we yet 
to recognize, going back to the beginning of our conversation, it's our war. This is not just Ukrainian war, European war, it's our war. It's a global war. Ukraine is a front line of the battle, probably eternal battle, between the forces of freedom and dark force of tyranny. And we yet to hear this recognition from the leaders of the free world that this war has no other outcome but the disintegration of the fascist Putin's dictatorship. That is the main threat to our civilization and to peace. And we're still having some European leaders, recently Joron Chancellor Olaf Scholz, confessing that they're making calls to Moscow. And I have no doubt that there are connections with Americans and Russians. And I understand, you know, you have global issues like the threat of the nuclear war. It's very, very hypothetical. But what I believe, you know, just it's that it was the rationale of all these calls, they still hope that Putin will show some sort of willingness to negotiate. He may, if he recognizes that, you know, he cannot win the war the way he wants. But the moment I hear that someone is saying, oh, if we can push Putin back to the line of 24th uh, February, that will be a victory for Ukraine. No, absolutely not. If Putin can actually get any piece of Ukrainian territory, that means that the entire global security system is bust. Of course, we know that the United Nations is nothing but a joke. It's a very bad joke. But one thing we know it, another one is we see clear demonstration that a big, powerful country can basically change the territory or just force territorial concessions of its weaker neighbor because it wants it, because it has some sort of, quote-unquote, historical rationale based on dubious claims hundreds of years ago. You know, in all of this, we've talked about the role of the international community. We've talked about the role of the free world. We've talked about some of the risks posed by other members of the unfree world, right? I mean, you highlighted Iran. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of questions about China. But one thing that I think there's really insufficient understanding about is the role of the Russian people. Putin is in charge of a country of over 140 million people. And, you know, obviously, this is a community that you tried over a decade ago to try to push away from Putin's influence. And, you know, needless to say, it, it didn't work. But what do you think is the role of the Russian people? And what should the international communities? relationship be to Russian citizens, you know, outside of those who are closely tied to the Kremlin? It's a tough question and very painful for me. I'm still a Russian citizen, though I have my Croatian passport as well to, to travel. You know, we hear from Russian activists in exile or Western politicians that this is not a war of Russia. This is Putin's war. I wish they were right, but it's not. I don't think that we are yet seeing any anti-war opposition inside Russia. Anti-war. Yeah, we saw a few hundred thousand people making to the streets in the first uh, 10 days of war. Dozens, uh, actually 16,000 of them, have been arrested. We don't know the exact number that have been incarcerated, but that was it. So we had, say, quarter of a million people out of 140 million that wanted to show their disagreement and uh, had courage to go to the streets. Some of them ended in jail. Some of them lost their jobs. Some of them left the country. We can assume that if 
quarter of a million made to the streets that you can probably multiply this number by 10, let's even by 20. Those who share this view but didn't have the same courage to take such risk. We're still talking about a very, very small percentage of Russian people, few percent, three, four, five, maybe 10%. I'm not even sure of that, that, that number. So what we're seeing now in Russia from all the pollings is that there's a growing discomfort about war because of the inconveniences, because the war caused problems. It's not protest against the war as it is. I'm afraid there will be no discontent in Russia if Putin succeeded of taking over Kyiv, or he would have another success now, or if he forces Ukraine into some territorial concessions and takes new territories and adds them to Russia. There is no consensus among, even among Russian opposition, against imperial nature of Russian state. And that bothers me. And I understand the frustration of Europeans and most of all Ukrainians who believe that Russian people must pay the price for their apathy, for their willingness to raise their voice and to stop this war. This war is being fought by Russians. The crimes against humanity committed in Ukrainian territory, despicable crimes committed by Russians, and not just, you know, the conscripts. Those are just people that's made a core Russian professional army. They are adults. They went there to make money and to kill and they had the support of their families. So we are talking about war that definitely has considerable support in Russian society. I wouldn't say it's 80%, maybe it's not even 50%, but naturally the number of people who are comfortable with the war and have seen no moral objections to it, it's, it's significantly high the number of people who understand that this is a criminal war launched by illegitimate regime, and Ukraine territorial integrity must be restored. So the only solution for this crisis in relation between the Russian public at large and the free world, in my opinion, would be a simple declaration that will be mandatory for every citizen of Russia to sign before applying for any official documents in the free world, whether it's visa, job application, permanent residence, university, a sport competition. A very simple declaration that contains three key elements. One is that the war is criminal. Two is that Putin regime is illegitimate. Three, Ukrainian territorial integrity must be respected. So the declaration that the Russian Action Committee suggested, and hopefully one day, Sooner than later, it will be received as a standard by European authorities, at least by some friendly countries, states that I, the undersigned, condemn criminal war launched against Ukraine by legitimate Putin's regime and recognize Ukrainian sovereignty and territorial integrity. That's the test that every Russian citizen has to be put on. And that's the way forward, because as I said, even many Russian activists who are now dwelling in the free world, they might be uncomfortable signing it because deep down, they're not sure that they can accept the return of Crimea into Ukraine and the rejection of the imperial code of, of Russian state, which I think has to be removed if my country would have a chance for her future.
Before we close here, you know, I want to dig in a little bit on this. You know, I've certainly heard a lot of talk about this with you and with other kind of liberal in the Western, in the classical sense of the word, Russian political leaders and others who, of course, are all in exile. So I guess the first question on this is for those 140 million Russians currently still residing in Russia, right? I mean, needless to say, for them, this isn't really an option, right? I mean, they could only sign such a declaration if, you know, they left Russia and they signed it from Turkey or, or wherever, right? I mean, presumably if they signed it within Russia, they'd be arrested. Their families, you know, would be immediately under risk. So is there anything that can be done for or with or with regards to those 140 million Russians? I mean, you know, I know we've had a number of efforts and we've worked with a number of other partner organizations to try to convey true information about the war to the Russian people, right? We've tried to break through Putin's digital iron curtain. And, you know, I believe in those efforts and I think we need to continue those efforts. But if I'm being really honest, those efforts are kind of a Hail Mary, right? I mean, we're talking about an investment of a few million dollars versus the investment of billions of dollars on behalf of the Putin regime. And given the fact that there's this kind of widespread or there appears to be this widespread support among the Russian population for Putin's war, and then taking into account kind of what Natan Sharansky called a fear society, right, where Russia is very much a fear society, where if you so much as call it a war, you know, you go to prison. Can anything be done? Or is this basically something that we should kind of put a pin in and revisit once the war is won? Six months is a long time to understand that the lack of information is not the main reason for this apathy and unwillingness to condemn criminal war and war crimes committed by Russian soldiers in Ukraine. It's not World War II. It's not even Cold War. Anybody who wants to know what's going on has many opportunities, various ways to access information about Ukraine. We know stories that's told by Ukrainians with relatives to Russia saying, we live under the bombardment. We are besieged. And the response from there was, oh, it's fake. So I don't think that we can now break through this psychological shield in the minds of millions and millions of Russians. We're talking about two decades, two plus decades of brainwashing propaganda. Let's not forget, 1944, 1945, Germany was still behind Hitler. Nazi foreign power for 12 years, less than 12 years. And the propaganda machine, with all due respect to Dr. Goebbels' ability to brainwash people, didn't have the same technology as today. So we are dealing with something that is unheard in history. And Putin made this experiment to prove that nation can be turned into moral and political zombies. There's only one way to take it away from them is to make sure that war is convincingly won by Ukraine. There's no other way. The only chance, the only visual that they will recognize is Ukrainian flag raised in Sevastopol. Then, as has happened many times before, the anger of Russian people will turn against their government. That's the way to remove Putin from power. He should lose his image, his aura of invincibility the image of the leader that always calls the shots and always escapes any trouble and traps. That's why I think it's far more important for us to concentrate on helping Ukraine winning the war. But anyone who talks about slowing down the military supply to Ukraine 
and looks for other ways of softening this crisis, as they say. It's just doing great disservice, not only to Ukraine, but for the future of Russia. Because sooner Russian people recognize that empire is dead. Better for all of us. There's an element here that reminds me of that famous quote from the Civil War general. I think it was Tecumseh Sherman, right, who said that war is hell. And, you know, the logic is that the sort of more painful it is in the short term, the less likely it is to last for a long time. That it's like ripping off a Band-Aid, you know, not to make light, of course, of the incredible pain and the incredible suffering and the countless dead. You know, so I certainly don't want to make light of those. But basically, it sounds to me like this argument boils down to the fact that, look, in order to defend the free world, in order to defend liberalism, sometimes that requires kinetic physical action, meaning it requires a victory on the battlefield. It requires military victory. And it requires the strength of one's convictions on the political and diplomatic front, the willingness to remain firm, the willingness to not necessarily negotiate, right? The willingness to reject negotiations on terms that are just unacceptable to those of us in the free world who believe in kind of this ideal of democracy and that people in a sovereign nation such as Ukraine have the right to define their own future in the face of this sort of dictatorial threat from Russia. I mean, do you feel like that's a fair summary? Yes, it's a fair summary. It brings us back to the beginning of our conversation. Ten years ago, politicians and experts and business people misjudged the nature of Putin's regime. Now, many of them are misjudging the nature of this war. And this war cannot end up as a tie. There's no negotiated outcome. It's either win or lose. It's black and white, like chess. Without recognizing, without making a clear declaration, equal of unconditional surrender of Anglo-American Declaration of 1943, we will not have the result soon enough to save Ukraine from further demolition and saving lives, many lives, and also suffering from people all over the world because this war has impact in every direction. It's an east, west, south, I'm not sure about north so much. <laughs> and I think that should be the, the motto of those who want this war to become a milestone in our history, a turning point in 21st century, that we will reverse the negative trend of democracy in retreat and start advancing and pushing against forces of totalitarianism and authoritarianism. It's our war. It's as simple. It is our war. And every day Ukraine suffers, democracy suffers. And the day Ukraine is victorious, democracy will have the great cause to celebrate and it will strengthen democracy everywhere. It will send signals to every place from Hong Kong to uh, Alaska. So it will create a new momentum in every quarter of the world and it will embolden freedom fighters and force of democracy to actually start retaking territory that we have ceded, often voluntarily, to the forces of darkness. I think that's about as strong a conclusion to this episode as we could hope for. So, Gary, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you all for listening to this episode of Winter is Here. 
brought to you by the Renew Democracy Initiative and Substack. I'm your host, Yuri Lepstein. At RDI, we are committed to pulling American democracy back from the brink and restoring its place as a global beacon for freedom. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player, Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts, or at renewdemocracy.substack.com and share the episode with a friend or become an RDI subscriber at rdi.org. Thank you.